from Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'll be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, I'm going to tell you a story. Hey friends, Michael Kingsbury, I'm still talking to you live from Philadelphia. I had to take another business trip this week, a short one this time, but uh, I brought my microphone along and holy cow, I actually got a hotel room that's on the interior, so not a whole lot of noise, and so... I can actually do some recording this time. Yay! Um, yeah, so uh, as far as uh, life in the Kingswood abode, there's not a whole lot to talk about. Got the uh, fourth story for my great challenge done. So that's four weeks in a row I've done a short story. And I'm in the middle of week five here, and every reason to expect I'll get the fifth story done without a problem. So that's good. Uh, let's see. I got two more short story audiobooks recorded and, or edited from previous recordings and up on the various uh, audiobook retailing places out there. So two more short story audiobooks for your pleasure to buy and listen to. These are stories you've already heard on the podcast, but of course I always appreciate making money, so it's good to have those out there. Uh, And I intend to continue uh, producing these previous recordings into audiobooks because it's something I should have been doing the whole time. And, frankly, uh, I've been astounded by the effect of having these short audiobook stories out. Not on Audible. Audible, you know, people have long had discussions in indie writer world about how uh, short, story, short story audiobooks don't really work on Audible because of the subscription plan and how the credit system works. And... I've found that to be true. Some of the short stories I've had up there did almost nothing, but once I moved everything that I had, got them out of Amazon exclusivity and put them onto Find Away Voices distribution to uh, all kinds of other places like uh, uh, Bibliotheca is the big one, the library interface. I'm not sure quite how it works, but the interface with libraries so they can uh, lend out your short, your short audio fiction and each time... Uh, you know, the library lends one out, you get a little payment. It's a small payment, but holy cow, just having a few out there made little blips every month. And the more I put out, the more those blips happen in these library rentals, and holy cow, that's starting to add up to you know, a decent chunk of change. So far, it's, you know, beer money, or it would be beer money, except that <laughs> this being the month of May, I decided to make this a dry month since... Uh, uh, it's one of those things where you look back over your bank statements like, wow, <laughs> I spent a lot of money on booze the last few months. And, hmm, have I been drinking more? I'm not sure. Maybe I should just cut it out for a while. A couple different reasons. A, money, because it costs money for booze. B, you know, if you want to be in shape and you're drinking, it's like, man, how do you getting rid of the gut? But then you're having a beer and that's empty calories and it defeats the purpose of trying to lose your gut. But also, it's one of those things where I was like, man, do you, have, you sit back and do a self-assessment, and you're kind of like, um, uh, if, if you really take account, it's sort of like, 
am I, am I comfortable with how much booze I've been having? I'm not sure. Well, I'm just going to cut it out for a month and see how, it, see how that goes and feel better. You know, don't have booze in your system. Just feel better and, you know, and prove to yourself you don't have a problem, if that makes any sense. Uh, reminds me of a friend when I was in the Navy. Uh, this guy Jim, his uh, his whole theory was, uh, man, I, he, he always used to say, man, I like drinking so much, but I'm afraid of being an alcoholic, so I'm only drink on the weekend, and that's it. And uh, <laughs> and I was like, I looked at him askance, and he told me that a couple times. I was like, all right, whatever lets you boat, dude. But I've come to think, it's like, yeah, maybe it's a good uh, good good theory there. So I was like, ah, right, screw it, month of May, no booze. <laughs> And, uh, okay, no big deal. No booze for the month of May. But it's weird because, yeah, how when you go out and you're, you go out at night and you're having a bunch of beer and the next morning, even if you're not hungover, you kind of know you were down drinking. You're like, oh, man, I kind of hit it loud last night. <laughs> it's funny because every morning so far in May, it's like waking up. I was like, man, it's like I've been drinking a lot last night, but I didn't drink at all. What the heck's going on? Maybe I'm just getting old. <laughs> anyway, so... What was I going to say? So, I'm not sure what, uh, what the, anyway, that tangent aside, um, where was I going with this? And how did I get there? Doesn't matter. Point is that, uh, oh yeah, uh, the, the audiobook sales were going to be beer money this month. It's not beer money, but the beer money has been increasing the last, you know, couple months since I've been putting more of these short stories out. So I'm really going to push hard to get them get all the shorts I have out out in the short audiobook because more money good and with this great great short story challenge going on knock on wood soon I'll have you know 52 of them to put out and you know individually and in collections and all this sort of thing and hey it can only help out uh, plus I'm finding it just kind of fun to put these things out the podcast is fun but putting them out as audiobooks is fun too why not discoverability for other work and also just because it's cool so yeah got two more of those up uh this week and i'll do some more in in the weeks to come so look out for that if you want um anyway so yeah that's what's been going on writing wise as far as non-writing stuff it's been a pretty much normal week uh but got to take a like I said, trip to Philadelphia. Uh, normally, just go once a month. This week, this month, I had to make a short trip this week, just to help bring aboard a new guy who is joining our team, and uh, my minion, for lack of a better word, my, my 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 one of my guys who works for me here, uh, who I would normally ask him to shepherd the new guy in place. He actually had to go to his uh, naval reserve two weeks training thing. So. Uh, in order to have the new guy not show up with no guidance whatsoever, I flew across the country to help him out. So that's fun. But uh, so, yeah, that's what's going on here. And um, yeah, so let's go back to the Pericles conspiracy, shall we? Uh, last time we left Joe, she had hooked up with the underground, met Becky, met that uh, muscle bound guy, Lars. Malcolm was introducing her around. And time to get down to business and see what they have to say. So sit back, enjoy, I'll talk to you on the flip side. The Pericles Conspiracy, written by me, read by me. I've already apologized enough, I think. Chapter 12, Evidence. We keyed in on the Pericles situation shortly after you docked, 
Becky said as she tapped the control panel at the command station. On one of the display screens that lined the far wall, a video clip began to play. Joe recognized it as the news footage from Pericles' arrival. She recalled there had been minor media attention when they did not unload immediately, but it had quickly faded. The video was nothing special, just a long panorama of Pericles' two-and-a-half-kilometer-long hull and the two counter-rotating rings which contained the ship's main living and cargo storage spaces. Who is we? Becky looked sidelong at Joe and hesitated for a moment before answering. A group of concerned citizens. Over the years, we've observed the coalition government becoming more closed and secretive, taking a more oppressive stance toward the civil and economic rights of the citizenry. A number of us who value liberty and would not see it perish gathered together to monitor the government's activities and bring its misdeeds to light. Oh, boy. Joe had heard about these kooks, or at least about people like them. Conspiracy theorists who saw malice in every act, no matter how mundane. From what Joe gathered, there was little to be said to convince them otherwise, either. Any of you found very many misdeeds? Becky nodded. More than we feared we would, but none matching what they did with the eggs you brought to Earth aboard your ship. Joe rolled her eyes, looking for Becky to Malcolm. Malcolm made that same claim to me before. Do you have anything to back up that besides conspiracy theories? Becky glowered at her and opened her mouth to reply, but Malcolm beat her to it. After what happened to Reynolds, do you still believe the coalition is on the up and up? Joe hesitated. Was she sure they were wrong? What happened was awfully coincidental, after all. No, no, that was not enough. You haven't shown any evidence to make me think otherwise. Becky jumped back into the discussion, gesturing toward the video of Pericles. At first, all we had was suspicion. The government's behavior after you docked was completely irregular, which was odd, but the virtual news blackout at the same time made us certain something was amiss. Then we met Malcolm, and he described what you encountered out there. Joe glanced at Malcolm. She was sure her continued disapproval showed, but he returned her gaze with a level stare of his own. I can't imagine you just took him at his word. What convinced you? The video that Allison shot? Malcolm shook his head. I didn't have a copy of that video when I met them, just the technical schematics. Those were enough for them to believe my story, at least at first. He gestured to the back of the room where the men in lab coats were working. The group's engineers were just as intrigued as I was when I first saw the documents. Working together, we made more progress in three months than I had made in the nine months aboard Pericles, and since then, in spite of herself, Joe felt a surge of curiosity. What have you discovered? Malcolm smiled an expression of wonder and eagerness that made him seem a young boy for a moment. It's amazing, Joe. Because the aliens only have three fingers and a thumb, they use a base eight number system. Yeah, we knew that on the ship. He nodded, of course. You remember how difficult it made deciphering the documents, though. How frustrating it was. Well, about six months ago, we finally learned enough of their mathematical language to translate the schematics. Joe, their plans for an artificial gravity device. Joe felt her eyebrows rising high onto her forehead. Malcolm's grin grew more broad, and he bobbed his head. You see it, don't you? With such a device, we could build more efficient ships that don't require spinning rings. We could build new propulsion systems, hovering systems, you name it. It's so exciting. Yeah, but that's a year after those people met you. Joe looked back at Becky. You're very trusting. That was a long time to go without any real evidence to back up his claims. Becky shrugged. If there's one thing we've learned, it's the value of caution and of patience. Malcolm made himself useful during that time, and if his claims amounted to nothing, she spread her hands. We at least got some good work out of him. Beside her, Malcolm smirked slightly at Becky's words, but she did not seem to notice, or at least she ignored it. But it didn't come to that. 
Within a few months, we received confirmation of sorts. One of our informants within the NSA passed word that something strange had been unloaded from Pericles, something not on the shipping manifests. If it had been narcotics or some other contraband, the news would have been awash with reports of your arrest and trial. That's a pretty big leap to make from narcotics to alien beings and their artifacts, right past common sense to the fantastic. You didn't think it could possibly be anything else? You don't seem that dumb. Becky glared at Joe again, then tapped, more like jabbed, the control panel, and the display shifted. The video of Pericles was replaced by an image of a long corridor lit by recessed lighting in the ceiling. The image bounced around slightly, as though the cameraman was walking. We investigated very carefully. It took many months to learn where the NSA brought the eggs, but finally, just a few months ago, we managed to get a person inside, Becky said. Despite her obvious irritation, Joe noted that Becky's voice was calm and serious and found herself impressed. Becky, at least, was not an amateur. Not completely. So this place is where, exactly? The corridor could be in any number of buildings that Joe had seen over the years. Deep in the Australian outback, far from observing eyes. Uh-huh. And who is this person doing the filming? Just someone who works there and decided he didn't like what was happening. You'd be surprised how many government employees come to us just for that reason. He, however, he was a bit more emphatic about it. Joe held off replying as the mole turned a corner and approached a wide antechamber that contained a security checkpoint. Half a dozen men, armed and armored in the latest government-issued gear, manned several scanners of various makes. The image bobbed, and Joe realized the bobbing was caused by the mole nodding to the security foreman. She blinked in surprise. He recorded this through his database implant, Joe asked, feeling even more incredulous than she sounded. How? Secure facilities have building-wide bug jammers, so people can't do that sort of thing. Becky crossed her arms over her chest and smirked. Her voice was positively smug as she replied. It wasn't too terribly hard to design an algorithm to overcome that. It has a pre-programmed lifespan, so it will delete itself and be undetectable later, but it's more than sufficient to get the recordings we need. She lost some of her smugness as she added, Unfortunately, it'll only work on video, not audio. But it's better than nothing. Joe had to concede that was a pretty impressive feat. From what she had learned during her security indoctrination, that sort of thing was supposed to be impossible. On the display screen, the mole left the security checkpoint behind and walked through a pair of double doors and onto a narrow walkway that ringed a large open room. The mole looked down over the railing that ran along one side of the walkway and revealed that the room was two stories deep. Joe could see from this high vantage point that it was divided into thirds. The nearest area was set up like a lab of some sort. Over by the far wall, it looked like there was a machine shop or something. The central third of the room was covered, preventing a recording of its contents. The mole turned away from the work floor and moved over to a set of spiral stairs at the far end of the walkway. Quickly descending to the ground level, the mole passed by a round fellow in a lab coat who was waiting at the bottom of the stairs and stepped into a work area. The image panned slowly around and Joe could see it was much more than the machine shop she'd taken it for from the overhead image. There were lathes, drill presses, and all the other sorts of machines one would expect from a shop set up along one wall. But the rest of the work area was filled with computer workstations and electronic devices of all kinds. That was not unusual, of course, but Joe could see no less than three clean room containments in a vacuum chamber, and along another wall, a series of pages containing odd symbols. It took her a second to realize those pages were recreations of the pages of mathematics she had seen in holographic form about the Pericles, projected from the alien leader's black rod. At least 30 people, all wearing lab coats, were working in the area. A few nodded familiarly to the mole, but he did not pause to engage them in conversation. Instead, the mole walked over to the wall, dividing the work area from the central covered area of the room. 
A single door in the center of the wall provided access. The mole stepped through and into an airlock. A few seconds passed, probably for the airlock to shift over to the internal atmosphere. Then the mole pushed open the inner door and stepped into the second room. It was wide open, with hardly any furniture. In the center of the chamber rested the alien's incubator, or egg stasis unit, or whatever the right term was. About two meters long, a meter wide, and a meter and a half tall, it was colored black with the exception of the control panel on one side and the frosted over transparent lid on top. It appeared the same as it had when Joe saw it the last time. Everything looks in order, Joe said, not even trying to keep the doubt out of her tone. Becky cast an annoyed look her way. Wait until you see the rest, she replied in a biting tone. Joe sniffed. The mole walked past the egg machine, and Joe saw that it was not as intact as it first appeared. One whole side of the machine had been removed, revealing its innards. Numerous probes and leads ran from a console set up nearby into the machine to monitor or sustain its function, Joe surmised. That wasn't so very surprising. The researchers would want to learn how the machine worked, but also would not want to disturb its function if they could help it. The mole did not linger, but instead made his way through another airlock door, which again stood in the center of the far wall. Son of a bitch, Joe breathed. She did not need to look away from the display to know that Becky wore a deprecating smirk as she voiced the words. The laboratory beyond the airlock was clean, antiseptic even, yet it was also ghastly. In an antimicrobe containment not far from the door sat an egg. An elderly man with a kindly face that did not match what he was doing had his hand stuck into gloves built into the wall of the containment. He was cutting into the egg with a scalpel. Another containment, several meters away, contained what Joe had to presume was an alien embryo. It was dead. Dissected. Nearby, three lab-coated men stood looking at an electronic microscope display of what could only be part of the embryo and chatting amongst themselves. One of them laughed. Joe felt sick. Seen enough? Becky asked. Joe nodded, and Becky tapped the control pad again. The video playback stopped. Chapter 13 Deliberation Why? Why would they do such a thing? Malcolm spoke before Becky could reply. Do you really need to ask, Joe? Power and fear. They see threats everywhere. They long ago sold their souls, and they assume everyone else has as well. It's especially easy to assume the worst of intentions in this case, because the creatures involved are not even human, are they? Therefore, they can justify doing just about anything, and not even feel a heartbeat's guilt or remorse. Joe wanted to retort, to deny the truth of Malcolm's words, but any arguments that sprang to mind ran false, even before she gave them voice. Finally, after a long moment of silence, she sighed and nodded. Do you understand now why I had to leave? Joe looked back at Malcolm as he spoke. His gaze was gentle despite the stern, determined set of his jaw. No, you didn't know this until a couple months ago. But he suspected, and he was pushing hard, said Becky. We overheard high-level chatter with his name on it. Chatter that made it clear if he didn't stop, he would be in some serious danger. So we approached him to let him know he wasn't alone and to make him aware of the threat. She smiled faintly. He didn't believe us at first. Malcolm shrugged, his gaze dropping for a moment as though he was embarrassed. I was naive. With what I had already suspected, I shouldn't have been, but... But it's hard to really believe those who are supposed to be the people's servants would fall so far, Becky finished for him, until you've seen it happen. What convinced you? Joe asked. After they warned me, I started paying more attention. I noticed the same people around me wherever I went. At the market, on the train, in restaurants, he scowled. I realized I was being followed. It wasn't hard to put two and two together from there. Becky's friend left contact information. 
I got in touch, and we made a plan. You know the rest. Joe nodded. The fire had been very convincing. No one ever questioned that Malcolm had died there, asleep in his apartment. Oh, there had been whispers around the office about how unlikely it was for a Schwartz to cause a fire of that intensity, but no one seriously doubted he was dead. A bunch of rocket scientists weren't all that smart after all, apparently. Joe found herself suppressing an amused smirk at that thought. I had hoped to show all this to Reynolds, Malcolm continued. Once he saw the truth, he would go to press, and the conspiracy would be laid open for all to see. The government would have no choice but to do the right thing and send the remaining eggs home, but now... Sighing, he shook his head. You're our last hope. Joe blinked. Me? What are you talking about? No one else in our crew will talk, and even if they did, you have the most gravitas among us. If you're not on board, the word of a subordinate crew member can be discounted. That's why we waited until we had definitive proof. I wanted you there with me to confirm what happened to Reynolds. Now, with him dead... Hold on a minute. There are plenty of other news agencies you could go to. For that matter, why don't you just put it up on the internet yourself? Between that video and Allison's... Joe stopped speaking, confusion welling up within her. For that matter, you said you didn't have Allison's video before. How did you obtain it to show it to Reynolds? Becky answered, gesturing at the screen. The mole. He managed to smuggle a copy of the video out. Nearly got caught, but he made it. Okay, fine, so why not upload... We tried that, Joe. Malcolm's tone was somber, dejected almost. As soon as we got both videos, we made an edited version that explained what was going on and uploaded it. It wasn't easy because our organization does not operate any computers that are attached to the network. We had to go through an outside entity, but the feds have bots on the net trolling for this sort of thing. Within a few minutes of our upload, the bots deleted the file and initiated a denial-of-service attack on the connection. An hour and a half later, agents raided the company's offices and confiscated all their data storage drives. His eyebrows lifted high on his head. Remember that? Joe did indeed remember a combination SEC-NSA raid on a local investment banking firm. They had been accused of insider trading and securities fraud or something like that. But that company had very quickly been cleared of all charges and allowed to resume operation. It had taken them some time to get back up and running, though. They lost a lot of money and more clients. From what she had heard, they were now a shadow of their former selves, small-time players at best. Okay, let's say I believe you. What are you proposing? Becky exhaled, tension seeming to leave her in a rush. You and Malcolm will hold a press conference reveal what happened on board Pericles to the world, as well as what happened since then. I believe we can guarantee most of the largest networks in the world will be in attendance. It will be exceptionally difficult to shut down a gathering like that or make it disappear. And then what? Then, Malcolm said, we wait to see what the government does and whether we'll have to take more drastic action. That sounded rather ominous. Joe inhaled and looked away from Malcolm and Becky. As her gaze swept over the room's displays and equipment, she found herself focusing on the readout of a Starliner leaving Gagarin Station. From its displayed trajectory, it was on a heading for the Talos colony. As she considered the vessel's course, memories welled up of the vine peaks of Talos and of the days she spent there with Malcolm so many years ago. Other memories followed, dozens of exotic locales and celestial phenomena, more than most planet-bound ever dreamed of seeing, passed through her mind's eye. Joe felt blessed to have been born a starfarer. Some starfarer natives, in their teen years, rebelled and left, choosing the life of the planet-bound over the one they'd been born into. But Joe had never even considered that, the magic of traveling the stars they called to her from her earliest memories. To do what Malcolm suggested would put the life she had always lived in jeopardy if it went wrong. The notion of spending years in prison, followed no doubt by never being allowed aboard a starliner again, was unacceptable. It was a big risk. But at the same time... 
Joe looked back at the image frozen on the main display, the dissected alien embryo. Could she just let that go? I don't know, she said. I need some time. From the corner of her eye, Joe saw Malcolm and Becky exchange glances. Becky wore an annoyed expression, but when Malcolm replied, his tone did not reflect his partner's opinion. Fair enough, but time is something we're running short on. Before too much longer, they'll call that portion of the project complete and dispose of the remaining eggs. When that happens, Malcolm spread his hands in a helpless expression. They stood in silence for a long moment, then Malcolm cleared his throat and spoke again. Come on, Joe, I'll drive you home. Malcolm dropped Joe off a kilometer from her condo in a small park that was devoid of streetlights. They sat for a moment in the car as Joe removed her blindfold and collected herself. I'll be in touch in a day or two. I hope by then you'll have decided to do the right thing, Malcolm said. Joe looked away, not sure how to respond for a moment. Finally, she just nodded and stepped out of the car. The darkness masked their identities, but as Malcolm drove off, Joe could not help but feel nervous as the night closed in around her. This area of town was not particularly crime-ridden, but it was not the most secure either. She had read about a woman being attacked in this very park seven or eight months ago. Pulling her light jacket tight about her body, Joe hurried through the park toward the main street. Not normally given to flights of fancy, she nevertheless found herself suspecting that eyes were upon her. And were those footsteps behind her? Her breathing became rushed, and then her brisk walk became a slow run, then a sprint. Surely the man behind her would catch her before she took her next step. Joe emerged from the park next to a streetlight and almost collapsed next to it, panting from exertion. Leaning against the metal framework of the light for support, she looked back over her shoulder, half expecting to see a burly, lecherous attacker emerging from the undergrowth behind her. Instead, there was only the nighttime breeze moving through the tree limbs in the park with a gentle rustle. Joe managed a short laugh as relief flooded through her. A heartbeat later, chagrin and embarrassment followed. She wasn't a silly girl, scared of the world and unsure of herself. She was a grown woman, successful and strong. She commanded a Starliner crew who followed her orders without question and respected her judgment implicitly. What was she doing, jumping at shadows? Annoyed with herself, Joe pushed off from the streetlight and, pushing her hair back from her eyes, walked down to the street toward her condo, standing as straight and tall as she could manage. But, confident exterior or not, she couldn't shape the feeling of impending danger. Must have been the things Malcolm and Becky showed her. Joe wasn't about to admit it to them, but the video had shaken her to the core. She had always proceeded from the assumption that the government was a force for good, keeping the order, providing a stable structure where people could live, pursue their passions, and conduct business that benefited not just themselves, but everyone else. These were good things, necessary things that people needed the government for, but she had hardly ever lived under this particular government's thumb. Joe was forced to admit as she walked through the night that she had been very insulated in her little world aboard the ship. If she saw some injustices here or on one of the other colonized worlds, she often would just shrug it off. It did not concern her because she would be gone in a few months, or a couple of years at most. As one of her mentors once said, she could stand on her head for two years if she had to. That was nothing. All the same, she had never before been confronted with an injustice, a duplicity of this magnitude, and from the very people she trusted to do the right thing. When she had left the security debriefings, Joe felt sure the NSA and the other government bodies that would inevitably become involved would do whatever analysis of the alien's artifact was necessary, then hurry the eggs back to their homeworld. That was the decent and right thing to do, wasn't it? Joe had upbraided Malcolm for his cynicism, for his distrust. She had actively helped push him out of the loop, recommended against as being included in the team the NSA put together to perform their analysis. 
In the brief time between her crew's release from debriefing and when the deputy director asked her opinion, Malcolm had simply become too distrusting, outright paranoid. And now it turned out he was right all along. Joe blinked in surprise at a familiar doorway appeared off to her right. Had she reached her building already? Snorting in a mixture of disgust and self-deprecating amusement, Joe turned and walked into her building. The lift ride was slow, as always. During the wait to reach her floor, fatigue suddenly set in. It had been an exhausting evening. Glancing at the chronometer on her wrist, she was shocked to find that it was 2 o'clock in the morning. It had been an exhausting night. And she had an 8 o'clock meeting with John Schulzberg, the navigation training department head, tomorrow. He planned to pitch his latest idea for a new hire training. She had not been looking forward to sitting through the presentation since John was, at best, dry as a stack of well-seasoned firewood. As tired as she knew she would be in the morning, the brief would be intolerable. It was too late to get out of it now, though. Joe stifled a groan as the lift doors opened. Wanting nothing more than to grab what few hours of sleep remained for her, she hurried down the corridor to her doorway and pressed her identity card against the controls. She crossed the entryway in a rush and was just opening her bedroom door when she heard a deep male voice behind her. Good morning, Captain Mishikawa. Joe whipped around, her fatigue forgotten as she instinctively dropped into a ready stance. Her weight settled evenly between her feet as her hands raised into a guarding position before her torso, the way her father had taught her all those years ago, and her eyes quickly scanned the room. The man was sitting on her couch, apparently taking his ease. She recognized him at once. Special Agent Calderon, of the NSA. Red-hot anger rushed through her, replacing her momentary fright. What the hell do you think you're doing here? She demanded through gritted teeth. Get out! Agent Calderon either didn't hear her demand, or he just ignored it. She suspected the latter, as he replied, You're out quite a bit later than normal tonight. Like that's any of your business. Get the... Before she could repeat the command, Agent Calderon tisked softly, shaking his head. It is very much our business when someone who is supposed to be helping our investigation goes off the reservation. A chill went up Joe's spine. What did he know? But she maintained a straight face, her anger at his presence overwhelming the uncertainty she suddenly felt. I don't know what you're talking about. You have no right to be here. Get out now, or I'll call your superiors and have you brought up on charges. Agent Calderon laughed, a mirthless chuckle that did not touch his eyes, hard as agates beneath his bushy brows. You have it backwards, Captain. You have no right to keep us out. And if anyone should be worried about prosecution, it is you. He stood up quickly, his powerful frame moving with a fluid grace that Joe would not have expected him to be capable of. You're going to have to come with me. Joe snorted. The hell I am. Agent Calderon shrugged, the movement of his shoulders somehow concealing the movement of his right hand as it dipped into his jacket pocket. Joe did not even notice it until a hand emerged, carrying a small plasma pistol, that he proceeded to point straight at her heart. I'm afraid I'm going to have to insist, Agent Calderon said in a quiet, no-nonsense tone. Well, that's not good. Looks like Joe's in trouble now. Learned the truth about what's going on, and now the NSA agents are getting her. Uh-oh. What's going to happen next? Oh my gosh, is Joe going to be okay? Better tune in next week to find out as we go into the next chapter or two. Or you can just go by the book. Which, of course, you know, I would love for you to do. And you should do anyway, because if you love the story, you really want to support people who are writing it. Go hook that up. Um, you know where you can do that. Go to my website. 
either michaelkingswood.com or ssnstorytelling.com and click on the bookstore thing. And you can uh, download it straight from me where I make the most money or go to Amazon and all those other places if you really want to. And uh, pick it up, get ahead of my reading since I'm sure, you know, you're sitting on the edge of your seat. Uh, but if you don't want to do that, of course, you know, no hard feelings. Just But do definitely uh, spread word about the podcast and the videos. Tell your friends, like, subscribe, all that sort of thing. Leave comments, reviews. Shoot me an email from the site. Tell me what you're thinking and uh, drop a line. And go from there. If you really like it, uh, what I'm doing, but you don't want to fork out the little bit of money for the book, if you want to spend even less money, you can go by the uh, website and become a... Uh, subscribing member of the website a little patronage action a couple bucks a month can't hurt and uh, up to you but uh, meantime do turn in next week and we'll continue on with the story Um, hope you have a good week talk to you then until then don't do anything I wouldn't do thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood you can find me online at michaelkingswood.com I'm also on Facebook and Twitter My web store is ssnstorytelling.com where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual e-tailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mailing list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music, copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net, all rights reserved.